From WHQR Public Media, this is a special podcast-only edition of The Newsroom. If you've been following the show, you know that we are full into elections mode here at WHQR, with deep dives on the races for New Hanover County Commissioners and School Board and the state representative campaigns from around southeastern North Carolina. But today's show delves into a topic that we just didn't want to put on hold, hunger in our region and what to do about it. The Biden administration recently put a federal-level spotlight on the issue. That's the first time the White House has done so since Nixon. Yeah, Nixon. So it's been a minute. A lot of people I talk to are surprised at just how pervasive hunger is in one of the most prosperous countries in the world, and specifically here in the Cape Fear region. There are over 66,000 people dealing with hunger in the greater Wilmington area, covered by our local food bank. That's New Hanover, Brunswick, Columbus, and Pender counties. Over 16,000 of those people are children. People also often seem surprised at who is at risk for hunger, and the pandemic made it more clear than ever just how many people are living one or two paychecks away from disaster. Now, rising inflation and soaring rents are carving away at people's finances from both ends, leaving them with less money to spend at the same time that that money is worth less and less in the grocery store. Look, eating healthy is expensive, and for many shifting into an austerity survival mode, that means diets get worse. At the micro level, this means people are suffering, and at the macro level, lack of access to and the inability to afford healthy food is driving up healthcare costs and increasing the likelihood of negative healthcare outcomes. That's how insurance companies say more people will get sick and die from preventable diseases. It's a massive, multifaceted problem facing the entire country. Back here in Wilmington, the local branch of the Food Bank of Central and Eastern Carolina is doing its best, but it's short on space, and the space they do have isn't laid out as effectively as it could be. That hampers the ability to grow and do more, not just for the Food Bank, but also for the broad network of community partners that works with them. So all of the nonprofits that run soup kitchens or after-school meal programs or things like that, the groups that come in and basically shop for their ingredients at the Food Bank, they can't react to increasing needs. So for the last few years, the food bank has been planning a new facility that would allow them to do more, not just in terms of delivering more meals to a broader area, but also initiating new programs, getting to some of the underlying issues that put people at risk for hunger. The facility broke ground in February, but there's a hitch. The cost of construction has gone up a lot. Materials, labor, the whole enterprise is far more expensive than it was on paper a year ago. Local government and businesses have pitched in, but there's still a gap. To make ends meet, the food bank needs about $100,000 in donations. Now, that's not chump change, but for an affluent county with a lot of resources, it's definitely doable. So for this episode, I invited Beth Gaglione, the executive director of the Wilmington branch of the food bank, and Matt Rogers, who sits on their leadership board, to come in and make their case. All right, my guests now are Beth Gaglione. She's the Wilmington branch director for the food bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. Beth, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. And Matt Rogers, he's on the leadership board of the Food Bank. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. And we're here today to talk about the Food Bank's uh, new building and your new project and some of the new work you guys are getting into. Yes. So first, let's talk about the building project. Many years in the making. Um, You know, pre-pandemic, a small group of us got together to talk about... um, a dream of having our own facility and having enough space to not only do the work that we currently do every day, but to also do additional work or new work or exciting work, solutions-focused work. Um, 
you know, currently we're in about 12,000 square feet and we'll move on to about 31,000 square feet. And um, in, in some strange ways, and I'll let Matt talk more about this too, the pandemic um, supported um, and helped us make the case that we needed um, more space and more capacity. Yeah, that's right, Beth. I mean, if you if you go back a little bit in time, you know we, we had a, a large two large events in our in our community. Uh, first was was Matthew, and the second was Florence. Mm-hmm. And in the, and there the, in those hurricane disaster relief events, we recognized an immediate need for more capacity than our twelve thousand square foot facility on Marsteller. So much so that we actually went out and, and leased extra warehouse space in Leland, and we still have that space today. So as we as we as we navigated through both of those natural disasters, I think quite resiliently, as we were just talking earlier, Ben, um, it, it recognized a better need for a facility that is more efficient than the one we have today. Uh, you know, we we have twelve thousand square feet, but it's a single story building. If you walk in it, you get a sense that there's not a lot of ability to kind of go up any with large racks. And so to put that in context for our listeners, it's like going to Costco. You walk around Costco and you you can see the things at ground level that you can access. If you look up, you'll notice all the backstock they have ready to come down when needed. That's what we kind of lack. So while we're, we're growing the footprint, you know, about 20,000 square feet, we're actually 6x times our storage capacity because we can able to go up three racks, if you will, again, back to that Costco example. And so just in that alone, we become more efficient in our operations, which have continued to grow. So we got through the the hurricanes, and we found ourselves um, in an unprecedented time with a pandemic that we didn't know how to manage. Uh, I think when I say we, I mean you know the, the broader world was unclear of what that would do to us. Um, and you know, in, in hurricane situations or natural disasters where we can isolate those those resources and and triage support, this, this affected everybody. And so our our need to get food into the hands of folks that need it became um, ever more important. And the need to be efficient with resources became ever more important. Um, it may be known that we rely heavily on volunteers to get our work done. Well, that volunteer base, um, broadly speaking, was unavailable during COVID. And so we had to bring in, we were very blessed with the National Guard. Mm-hmm. We had to bring in more resources of our own staff. Mm-hmm. And again, those staff just need to be very efficient in, the, in those moments to make sure that we can take care of the need. So I, I, to best point, coming out of two hurricanes in a pandemic, we are, we are elated to have a facility that will support our operations in the future and, and just really overall help the community more than we ever had before. One thing I'll add to that, um, you know, when we moved into our current facility in the, I believe it was in the late 80s, neither matter, I were there then, um, it was a, a blank canvas of, of floor space, right? Um, and one thing that will look very different in the new food bank is um, the amount of refrigerated and and freezer space, right? Because, uh, and I liken it to, I like how Matt talks about Costco, I liken it to shopping the perimeter of your grocery store. You know, that is commonly now known as the place to get the freshest and the best food in the produce section. and so as a food bank, we have been trying to increase the amount of food that we put out the door every day or the day that is highly nutritious, dense, good for you food. And most of that can be found in your refrigerator today. And so that will be true at the new food bank as well. So I want to back up a little bit and ask you guys a little bit about 
who are the people who are being benefited by this? Like, what? Who are the faces of the people who are on the other end of your work? Matt likes to use the quote, and I'll steal it from him. Um, the face of hunger is unknown, right? It could be your neighbor. It could be the person down the street. It could be a person who's checking you out at the grocery store. Um, I, I have heard many of our partner agencies that we work with, and we can talk a little bit about our partner agency network who helps us get this work done. There are 88 of them in a four-county area that come to the food bank to access food. And what they will repeat over and over again is more often than not, the people who are in their lines are people who have uh, experienced some kind of emergency in their life, right? They've, their car has broken down. There, something has happened health-wise to a family member. You know, they're one emergency away from not being able to afford groceries. Yeah, that, that's, that's fair, Beth. And I think just to put that into numbers and context here, uh, for our specific area, just to, just so everyone knows, the, the, the food bank here in Wilmington serves actually four counties. We serve New Hanover County, obviously, also Brunswick, uh, Pender, and Columbus. Mm-hmm. With our new facility, we're actually picking up a new county, and that'll be Duplin County because we'll have more capacity to, to serve them. In that population, there are about uh, 66,000 individuals, as of our last census report, that are what we, we define as food insecure. Of that 66,000, almost 17,000 of those are children under the age of 18. And that number continues to be fluid as the pandemic evolves. And if we go back in time, again, during the pandemic, what we saw happen immediately was schools close. And a reliable meal, probably the only reliable meal for many of these students was that meal, that breakfast and that lunch they get at a free or reduced cost. We along with all of our partner agencies, had to step up and fill that gap. Mm-hmm. And so that is a huge, huge service that we provide through the food that we get in and then distribute through our, our network of partner agencies. So that that's a face of hunger that's very apparent and very real to us and one that we we all, I think, the community looks to serve. But it's also, you know, it's the elderly uh, demographic, the folks that are maybe they, they have some resources to access some food, um, but maybe those foods aren't the right foods. Maybe they're just able to buy things that are not healthy because they're more affordable. And so for us, the best point, almost 60% of what we distribute now is what we call foods, nourishing foods, foods to encourage and nourish, fresh produce, fresh um, dairies, meats, cheeses, things that are more health-minded. Um, and so our new facility will have about seven times more freezer and cooler space than we have today to distribute more of that. But that's what that demographic, I think, sometimes lacks. And so when we say food insecure, it's not that they maybe just don't have food on the shelf, but that they actually have healthy foods, foods that food is medicine that helps, you know, kind of their overall uh, plan for health care. So this is something we've, we've talked about on the newsroom a couple of times before, but this idea that it is much more inexpensive to eat poorly, mm-hmm. right? Junk food, um, you know, pre-made food, pre-made meals, stuff like that. And that was before inflation pushed grocery prices up 10, 12 percent, um, especially for the freshest and most nutritious foods. Have you guys seen that impact here? A hundred percent. I mean, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, 
our foods come, the food that we distribute in the food bank come from a host of places. Uh, we buy some food, so the, the money that we raise we actually is used to buy food. We also have been blessed that we have a great recovery food network. So this is all of the grocery stores that maybe bring us items that they can no longer sell that have gone past their expiration date, um, but are still you know safe to be distributed. We we benefit greatly from Publix and Harris Teeter and Walmart and Food Line for those resources. We've seen that decline through the pandemic as supply chains have been become crippled. Uh, those businesses themselves are struggling to keep things on the shelf. And so we at the food bank have actually got to come out of our general funds more than ever to go out and purchase food. Now, the food we're purchasing, again, is, is fresh items. We're purchasing bananas. We're purchasing fruit. We're purchasing apples by the case and truckloads. Uh, we're, we're blessed. We are the sweet potato capital of the world. So we always have a plenty of those. But we're also trying to always find other foods that encourage. And so that has been a big shift to our operating model. One of the things that, that – you all have talked about um, on a WHQR, and, and we talk about it um, within our food bank network, too, is people have access, different access to food, right? And so to some degree, what you have access to is based on where you live. Um, and so what we used to call, you know, disadvantaged or poor communities and, and more so now are calling historically resilient communities, we know that there is um, – there is a difference between, you know, what people in, you know, who live in predominantly African-American communities can access. And we know uh, the same is true for Hispanic communities. There, is, there are different levels of access issues. There are different levels of food insecurity in those communities. Um, and as a, a network of food banks across the country, um, we are digging into those numbers and putting plans in place um, and how do we address those historical differences? What can we do with our par partner agency network to address those facts? Yeah, I know there's – and sometimes these two issues get blended together, affordability mm -hmm. and access. Mm -hmm. um, and they're related, but I think when we're talking about access, I, I feel like we're often talking about food deserts. Mm -hmm. um, there's a number of them here in the you – know, even a dense urban county like yes. in Hanover County, I believe the densest – population county in North Carolina, still has food deserts. Mm -hmm. And your new building is actually located at the site of, I believe it was Everybody's Grocery. Yes. And and, and what also happens to be um, one of the most significant food desert um, food deserts in the state of North Carolina. Um, and so we had the opportunity to be in that community. Um, and it didn't take us long to decide um, that we felt that was a good place for us to be. Yeah, when, when we started, you know, going back to 2019, when we started looking for a site for a new facility, we knew we needed a warehouse facility, and that's hard to find land to do that on sometimes. Um, we had a lot of folks come to us with property, you know, in the airport uh, corridor over in Leland, even as far as out in Columbus County. And while we were very gracious for those opportunities, we, we recognized that we would be moving away from the, the core population that we serve which happens to be the, uh, the density of, of Wilmington. Um, so great for a truck to come in, but not really giving us a front door for our, for our client and constituents. So we were very blessed. We had a very um, gracious donor who offered up the property at 1000 Greenfield Street, to your point, Ben, which was the home of the Everybody's IJ that burnt down in 2018. So when that opportunity presented itself, it's five acres, about three and a half, we're actually going to build on. The rest, we'll, I'll, I'll share with you what we're going to do with it later. Um, we knew what was lost and that fire. And so a small group of us, as Beth mentioned, we were talking about the prospect of a new facility. 
it was very important to us that we stepped into that opportunity and we put back something for that community to access fresh, affordable proteins, you know, perishable items. And so our new facility does include um, a fresh market. Um, one that will it won't compete with the other you know area stores that are around the area. We're not going to sell sundries. We're going to sell produce, protein, vegetables. We're partnering with Feast Down East here in the community. They're going to provide us with locally grown produce from our farmers in the area, and we're going to sell those at a subsidized uh, cost to the consumer. So the goal is to have that community have a grocery store, if you will, as well as anybody else in the Wilmington broader area that wants to come visit that and shop with us. We'd love to have them. Yeah. I like to say, you know, so many meals, no matter what culture you come from, comes from onions, garlic, and some kind of stock, mm-hmm. right? That's, mm-hmm. And you can't get those things at like a family fair or no. a dollar store. No. And so that, I mean, just the, the building blocks of a family meal are the stuff that people got access for. You can, I mean, you can get Tylenol at a corner store. Mm-hmm. You can get, you know, whatever else you I need. like to say, we're not going to have toilet paper. Right. But, you know, it was interesting. I was, Feast Down East has... Um, supported us in hearing from the community. They've been leading some discussions about some of the other work that we're going to have, and and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I had the opportunity to walk back to my car after one of those conversations with a member of the neighborhood um, who lives in an apartment excuse me, an apartment complex right right across the street from where our food bank will be. And um, you know, I could tell she wanted to ask something that maybe we didn't talk about at the meeting. And she said, and I was sort of waiting for like a big question that, oh, gosh, I'm not going to be able to answer it. And I want to be, you know, as I want to, you know, be open with her about our plans because we really haven't had the chance to talk too much about the commu- to the community um, about our plans during a pandemic and trying to be safe and all the rest. And she said, will you have chicken breast? And I said, um, we we will have fresh food. We will aim to have meats and cheeses and dairy as often as we can. Um, and she said, I really just miss being able to buy fresh chicken breast. And I thought, boy, that's something that we just all take for granted, mm-hmm. right, is mm-hmm. the ability, whether it's Costco or going to Walmart or, you know, and you don't realize how important those things are to people until you have the chance to have those conversations. No, that's very true. I mean, I think, you know, what we're doing here, Ben, is is it's not, not, not a lot of food banks have a grocery model attached to it. So it's not necessarily cutting edge. I think we're more like bleeding edge of this thing. We actually went out and looked at, you know, we're part of the Feeding America Network across the nation, which is a host of the largest food banks you can think of. Not many people are doing this work yet. And so while we're excited about it, and we've been, you know, you know, really honest and open with the community about what we're trying to do here, um, we also recognize it's going to come with opportunities and key learnings for not just the Wilmington community, but I think for the broader food bank network across the nation. Another question I wanted to ask you guys, do you feel in your work that maybe some of the recipients, some of the people who think about this work, do they attach a stigma to mm-hmm. being the recipient of, of food and produce from the food bank? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think um, during the pandemic, um, I think a lot of folks, I think a lot of things changed. I think folks that thought they were a bit of above the poverty line or never considered themselves to beat somebody that was food insecure, found themselves in a unique situation prior to the government coming to, to, to the rescue with some, some funding. There was a lot of people in need immediately. I mean, within weeks, 
to two weeks, people were in need. You saw the videos uh, of long lines in Houston and Texas and across the nation. And we, Beth and I, I don't know how many calls we got from people in the community saying, do we have this situation here? How can I help? Because we're seeing it on the news and the awareness of these very, you know, miles of cars trying to get food. Good news is we, 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 we had a need here and we were serving it pretty well. Um, but I think people always know or, or knew they were probably a paycheck away from trouble, found themselves in trouble, um, and were, were gracious that the food bank was there to help. And so I think in some ways the pandemic helped re- remove that stigmatism. I think it very much was there. Um, and I believe that, that I, I don't know how we kind of go out of that phase, but I think people recognize that, you know, access to food and, and food insecurity is not as far away as, as maybe they once thought it was. And that's true for, for me and, and so many of my peers. Matt mentioned the long lines of cars that we saw on the news at the onset of the pandemic. And, you know, part of that was about staying safe, being distanced, right? But the other part of that was, do you have a network of partners that you work with that can manage the increased capacity that is going to come because so many people were out of work and so many people, even if they weren't out of work, their hours were reduced. Um, I mean, we all know someone who lost their job or lost significant hours, probably many people. Um, and, And when we talk about our agency network and we talk about organizations like the Salvation Army and Catholic Charities and Nourish NC, um, and the Boys and Girls Club, uh, and Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. You know, those are the folks who are there inside the communities where you live, right? You know those folks because your kids go to after-school care there, or they're around the corner from where you live. And so going there doesn't feel as discouraging because you know them. They're your neighbors. And so we really... Um, we relied on that network significantly, and we invested in them as opposed to trying to find the biggest parking lot. I mean, we could have been at UNCW um, just like they were doing immunizations there. We could have been at the mall. As a matter of fact, we were invited um, to come to the mall. And, you know, do you need to do food distributions here like they did during Hurricane Florence? But I think we recognize that to be able to rely on people who people know to distribute food. I think it does take some of the stigma away. Um, It's much easier to accept help from someone you know than someone you don't. Um, And so we really work as hard as we can to not put ourselves in a situation to have to do mass feeding. Um, I mean, there are situations where you can't avoid that. I mean, feeding, you know, doing shelter feeding during storms. I mean, there's not a whole lot of other ways to feed hundreds and thousands of people unless you're all in one place um, and it's not safe to be out out there. But um, the pandemic has taken its toll on our partner agency network. And right now we're very focused on rebuilding that network. And as Matt mentioned, we've seen a sustained 25 percent increase in the number of people who are accessing the network for food, yet we still have instability in um, in the food chain. So, it, you know, we're sort of at, in an unprecedented place. But to, to answer your question about the stigma, does it exist? I, I think it does for many people. Um, but do we do everything we can to make it a welcoming environment? 
I think, by relying on partnerships in the community that people know. Um, going to your child's school to access a box of food, like the work that Nourish NC is doing, that is destigmatizing, we feel. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that as opposed to, you know, going out hat in hand to yeah. a stranger at a mm-hmm. warehouse somewhere. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about, because I, I know you feel this is a major part of what you do. Anything else you'd like to say about those partnerships that you have? Well, you know, I talked about the new facility and some of the efficiencies it creates for our, our staff, but th- just the way the mechanics of the food bank work, because I don't think people sometimes understand it. Our job is to make sure that we have the resources that our partner agencies need. It's very rare that we actually direct to, to client give food. Uh, we can. We have ways to do that. that. If someone walks up and is in need, we will definitely help them on the spot, and then our, our partner agencies will pick them up from there. Um, but those agencies, uh, either they get a direct delivery from us or they come shop. Mm-hmm. So, again, back to my Costco analogy, our current facility, given its 10,000 to 12,000 square foot you know, floor space in there, um, it, it shifts a lot because we're doing volunteer events and we're doing packing. And depends on what shows up in terms of the size, we might have to rearrange the warehouse. So our partner agencies, these are volunteers, generally speaking. They're coming to us on a Tuesday or a Thursday to grab some food in the morning. They want to get right back to their the Mother Hubbard's covered and get to work, um, we basically move the grocery store around every time mm-hmm. for them. I can't, can't imagine how frustrating that is when you come to shop and the bananas are no longer where the bananas used to be. Mm-hmm. And so we, we understand the need and the pain points they themselves have. So this new facility has a dedicated warehouse space, and it will greatly reduce the amount of time they are spending away from their agencies. That That's really important to us. Second, it also has its own um, volunteer area. Again, volunteers are uh, the backbone of our work. We love when they come. We don't really have a very welcoming space for them to work now. We have to do some kind of pop-up events and set up some tables. It's a lot of fun. It's hot and sweaty. Mm-hmm. Um, but this new facility will have a dedicated entrance just for them where they can come, they can check in, and then we'll have a volunteer workspace. So if we're doing you know, potato sorting or we're doing some bagging of things, there's a space just for them to work and there's a space just for those partner agencies to come in a different door and to get their items. And this may sound small, but we even put a restroom in for them because mm-hmm. some of these folks are driving, as I said, from Pender or Columbus County. So they can come in, they can plug their phone in, charge their phone. If they're there for a few minutes, just a place for those, those really hard workers to have a moment to themselves while they're picking up their load of groceries for the week. I think that um, our friend... Um, at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, uh, Roxanne Lansdowne, she said it best when we um, interviewed her um, about the work that we're doing to build a new building. And she said, until the food bank grows, we cannot grow. Our capacity to serve people is limited by their capacity limits. And I, I, I don't know that I could say it any better. I mean, we can't do more and we can't do anything a whole lot different than what we're doing unless we grow. Yeah. I mean, we, I mentioned, you know, we, last year we distributed 81.5 million meals across this area that I mentioned before. Of that, 60% was perishable. Those items in the freezers and fridges that we have, they go first. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're constantly restocking those, but with greater capacity, we can bring in more. Mm-hmm. And because we know the need, if you're coming to shop with us, that's the thing, just the best earlier analogy about a grocery store, that's the thing that those partner agencies are going for first, mm-hmm. is the fresh items. 
and then they're getting their staples from there. Yeah, it's all about nutrition, really, at the end of the day. It's about making sure that you get the best food inside a person who's hungry so that they don't continue to be hungry. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of connect this with something that happened last week. And I think we, we before we started recording, we talked about how this kind of got lost in the storm. Mm-hmm. And this was the announcement from the White House about um, sort of a new federal level focus on hunger in America. Yes. One, one of the things that I really liked about what was talked about last week, um, and, and we talk about this all the time when we talk about our new facility and the things that are going to change, we are not going to stop feeding people anytime soon just because we may be talking about doing some work that's a little different and has a little bit of different focus. The focus was on, you know, the, the way towards eliminating food insecurity is to continue to feed anyone who is hungry, is to put a focus on people when they fall in hard times. So that was really the core of what I heard. Um, and then there was a lot of new exciting um, discussion as well. Yeah, we, we kind of do two things at the food bank, and, and the second part's emerging. The first part is, is we, we feed the lines, like we take care of the need. Right, we ensure that our partner agencies have the best resources and they're fully stocked for their their need base, um, and then we try. We're getting in this new space of trying to shorten those lines, understanding the real socioeconomic impacts of health and food insecurity, and what we can do as, as our, in our space to help alleviate that. So there's a couple different ways the new facility will help address that. The first is is nutrition. Uh, when you're building a new kitchen in this facility, for, and that kitchen will do three things for us. The first thing it'll do, it'll do t- nutrition classes. So I mentioned partner agency comes and shops with us. Sometimes we get some pretty unique things from our, from our farmers or from, from folks that are growing in the area, and they may have not seen those things before. Rutabaga. Yeah. Rutabaga. Yeah, and they may, they may pass them up. So we want to make sure we, we're going to hold, hold like cooking classes, and so we can teach folks how to use these items that are being donated so that they have more access to fresh fresh produce. That, that's one. And then that, that's, that nutritional aspect will exist for the community as well. The second part, we talked about hurricanes a minute ago. This new facility will also be able to serve 5,000 hot meals a day in the event of a natural disaster like Florence. During Florence, you know, it took, I, I was watching the news about, you know, uh, Ian, and you saw familiar faces and friends that were here for us. You, you saw Jose Andres, the Royal Central Kitchens, you saw the Cajun Navy. Um, those, those folks came to our rescue during Florence. And so the new facility, um, we worked directly with World Central Kitchens uh, and Christy Ferretti, who was a, a lifeline to us during the pandemic, uh, sorry, during the hurricane of Florence, um, to ensure that we built a kitchen ready to stand resilient for that moment. So it'll be there. It's Category 5. You know, it's got a generator hooked up to it. So that is New Hanover's new disaster feeding site mm-hmm. come, come next hurricane. Um, and so, and then finally, what that kitchen does for us is we start to create some space around workforce development. Um, we know that we are in a hospitality environment here, right? People love to come and move to Wilmington now. And so our restaurants, our resorts, our hotels that are opening up everywhere need qualified, trained culinarians and hospitality experts. And so we have an opportunity to bring in not the, not the student looking to go to Cape Fear, uh, perhaps, but a student that maybe wants to get a leg up in that workforce. We're going to train them for free through an accreditation program. While they're there with us, they get the chance to cook the food we need for our programs, 
and they leave with a certification that should net them a better paying job here in the workforce. So the kitchen, while it's only a couple thousand square feet, has a lot of things built into it to make it a very important part of our operation. Matt tied in um, in that explanation sort of the secondary piece of what the White House address was about, and that was about nutrition, right? So nutrition education will be happening in that kitchen. Nutritious food will be being cooked in that kitchen. And so a much higher, uh, more significant focus on nutrition. Um, You know, people have criticized the food bank. And and it's been a while since I've heard this criticism. I worked at a a food bank in Ohio um, before coming here. And I remember the partner agency saying, all I can see right now is soda pop. Why? And they probably didn't call it soda pop in Cleveland. They probably called it Pepsi or, or whatever. But and when I first started at the food bank in Wilmington, too, that was sort of the front line of what you, you would see because we wanted to move it quickly. Um, there is value um, on everything we have in the warehouse. So while we've talked about nutritious food and we've talked about fruits and vegetables and we've talked about meats and dairies and, 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 all the, you know, and, and our focus is on uh, having nutritious food as much of it as we can. We still value the partnerships that we have with Coca-Cola. They provide water during disasters. And you know what's so wrong with having a Coke um, with dinner? Um, That's a normal thing that you and I do every day. And we want anyone who's in, you know, living um, in, in the situation where they have to access food to have that normal experience too. So we don't say no to a lot of food, but what we are looking for out in the community when we talk about the food that we're looking to bring to the food ha- to the food bank, it it is the food that has the highest nutritional value. I don't know about rutabagas. I still don't know how to cook a rutabaga. Roast them. If it, if it was under the ground, just olive oil, salt, pepper, and roast it, you're going to come out. You're going to yeah. come out all right. They nailed it. Yep. We have we have a nutrition education team, and they do amazing things with squash. And every time I put it in my mouth, they'll be like, Beth, they're squashing that. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, as it, it, it's one thing to be told how to cook something. It's another thing to see someone use their knife, put it in in their, their oven, and, and bring it out and then share a recipe with you. And so, again, back to the White House address, very much about nutrition and how to get more nutritious food in people's homes, and, and we're doing that work alongside. Yeah, I, I don't want to endanger your Coca-Cola partnerships, but probably <laughs> more root vegetables and less soda, bro. That's good. right. Well, I think the point the, the Biden House, the Biden White House was making, at least in part, was that this isn't just, uh, you know, sort of a Pollyannish, you know, eat your vegetables kind of speech. This yeah. is a enormous part of the of our money goes right. into dealing with the adverse effects of eating poorly. That's right. Cardiovascular disease, liver disease, obesity, diabetes. Um, it's expensive to eat poorly. In the long run, it is way more expensive to eat poorly than it is to eat well. Um, but people don't always have the finances to make those good choices right, right now. So I, that was part of what he mm-hmm. was trying to say. And you've, you've obviously heard the phrase, you know, food is medicine. Yeah. But I think people taking that a little more seriously. I know healthcare networks are now looking at that. Yes. There's a shift for podcast for another time. But um, there's a shift in the healthcare industry looking at, you know, we could have saved a ton of money 
on, yes. on cardiovascular That's right. uh, aid if we had just gotten these people to eat less fatty, less, you know, high-density cholesterol-heavy yeah. food. Yeah, and to that end, I mean, we're starting to do some work with Novon Health, and, and Philip Brown has been an instrumental um, guide in this work for us. And I figured so, his name would come up. <laughs> when, when, you know, like, my, my wife's a nurse, and so, you know, she's a cardiac nurse, and so, you know, um, when folks leave the hospital and they have had an open-heart surgery, they're obviously assigned a diet to deal with that. Then what happens, right? Are we giving them the tools to leave that space armed either with recipes, maybe the food itself to actually cook? Because if you say eat a low-sodium, uh, low-cholesterol, heart-healthy diet, that may mean very different things to different people. Uh, don't even know where to start. Uh, and so they end up checking labels in the box and trying to figure out what, what sounds like a heart-healthy diet. So right now we're doing some, some work with them to actually give that patient when they leave a box, a box of food that says this represents mm -hmm. the, the guidance that we're giving you. And these items with a recipe is kind of a starting point for your new diet. Um, and again, back to food as medicine, you know, I have I personally and I know many friends have changed, you know, eating habits around plant based diets and seen phenomenal results. So we know that we know it works. The science is there. The data supports it. But it is a challenge to take my father mm -hmm. and try to get him off of a fried food, you know, diet because he grew up on that yep. in, in Georgia and, and make him rethink those ingredients in a more meaning. Keep the same fish, just cook it differently. I've, I've always, and I will, I will lose friends by saying this, but um, calabashing everything in sight yeah. when you've got some of the world's best seafood right yeah. off the coast seems Everyone's in all, yeah, fine. But like when I see like really nice diver scallops and they're just deep fried, I'm like, good lord, I yeah, know. what are we doing? Yeah, I all know. Right. One one thing I'll add: um, when I came to the food bank seven and a half years ago, I was surprised to see the amount of resources that we were putting towards connecting people with resources that were already that they were already eligible for, but didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, we talked a little bit before we started. Um, this interview about the looking at SNAP, look what we formerly called food stamps. Um, we had a small staff at the time that was connecting people who came to access emergency food with something that would support them more longer term, something that they might need to have access to for six months to a year. We have a much larger team of people who are doing that now because for an individual who knows that for whatever period of time they're going to be living um, with an income that doesn't support all of their family's food needs, SNAP is an amazing benefit for them. Um, and that's another thing that was discussed last week by the White House is, you know, we have resources um, that ha that are available to people who are food insecure. How many of them are accessing them? How long has it been since we've looked at the eligibility guidelines for that? Mm -hmm. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has been. Yeah, I mean, my big takeaway from last week was that um, the, I think the detail that shocked me was hearing that we there had not been a White House focus on this since the Nixon administration. I thought they were going to say, you know, Clinton right. or Herbert Walker Bush, but no, Nixon. So it has been a long, long time since there's really been a national conversation yes. about hunger. I think people are routinely shocked to learn these knock-on medical costs. I think they're even more shocked to learn just the staggering number of people in their own community, Matt, as you pointed out. The number of children, for example, yeah. um, and it's hard to be partisan or cynical about hungry children. I, I think that that has shaken people a little bit. I think the pandemic, as you pointed out, has changed people's perspectives on 
how far away they were from a situation where they would need because, you know, there was legislation came in pretty quickly for unemployment to keep the lights from going out, to keep evictions um, held at bay by moratoriums. But you need to feed your kids tonight. That's mm-hmm. right. And so I think that that changed people's minds a bit. One of the things that that struck me instantly um, during COVID was the number of people in hospitality who, you know, they in instantly lost their income and instantly became food insecure. Um, I, I something I never worked in a restaurant personally, and something that um, Matt, you might have been the one who who shared this with me. When you work in a restaurant. You know, you're guaranteed at least one meal a day. And I say guaranteed. You know, it's it's sort of the maybe an unwritten rule or a written rule. You're getting fed. I can tell you're you. You're getting fed daily. In t- 2003, I worked at Front Street Brewery. Mm-hmm. I made $6 an hour. I was below the poverty line. I was never hungry. Yeah. I was the most well-fed poor person I knew. <laughs> That's right. Because I worked in restaurants. That's right. So you're not only eating the food from the restaurant, but but obviously it's, it's a part of your of what you do for a living. And when we talk about some of the work that's going to come out of our new um, our new kitchen at the food bank, you know, we want to see a person who might enter the workforce at today's $12 an hour and hopefully find a place um, in the culinary world um, that is a living wage and they can access good, healthy food for their family with their wage. Yeah, that's a good point on the show. We have great chefs in this community. Uh, who are great partners of ours uh, at the food bank and have been for years. Um, but when when all the restaurants close down, I mean, it is it is sometimes lost on people. The staff meal that you, I mean, I grew up in the kitchens. I'm, I'm a chef by trade. Due to analogy at, at at Front Street Brewery, I lived in the Keys for a while, which is a very expensive place to live in, in my early 20s. And I, I worked at a resort, and that was it. You know, like, like what I was making for a paycheck barely covered my housing. Uh, and so I would go in and eat every staff meal available to me because that, that was a part of my compensation mm-hmm. in many ways. And that was that was gone. That was and gone. again, back into a, a Wilmington hospitality destination, um, we have a lot of folks that work in hotels and restaurants and fast casual around here that rely on those meals more than you realize. And, the, and those chefs were the first to come forward after Hurricane Florence and help with disaster relief. So we have an extraordinarily, extraordinary culinary community here that cares about food insecurity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, before we let you go, I want to talk a little bit about how people can help um, get you over the finish line with this new building. Well, we, uh, in the last couple weeks, and you may have heard, um, we instituted what we called our public phase of our campaign. So we've been working quietly behind the scenes. Matt has practically been a full-time employee of the food bank for the past two and a half years. We borrowed him from his family. Um, They were all gracious to to loan him. And several other people, Philip Brown has been mentioned, um, Pastor Clifford Barnett. Um, We've just had a fantastic team of people who have been helping us. Um, We're almost there. Um, Where we, um, as many uh, who are building things, um, found ourselves struggle a little bit was the cost of construction. So the building was supposed to cost at the outset. We started off trying to raise $7 million, and that was going to be enough for us to to create uh, the new facility, leave a little bit of space for payroll for the next couple of years. We're adding several positions, as you can imagine. And, you know, we rely heavily on fundraising for operation costs. And so we, we wanted to set ourselves up for a two-year run of having enough operating overhead plus the, the facility itself not to go back to the community so quickly. 
We've been uh, in a, a very strong fundraising position over the last two years, um, but with the cost of construction increasing just a little bit, each time we look at those numbers more than a little bit, um, we find ourselves um, you know, a little further away than we would like to be from meeting our goal, but we're very close. Yeah, and the thing we didn't do, I mean, the, we have a great board of directors who are very focused on this project, and so when we started fundraising, we, we quickly found ourselves in a pretty good place. We had some great folks come to the table, and Sino is one of our lead sponsors at a million dollars for the naming of the building, and we could not be more pleased with that. The Cameron Foundations have been wonderful. The city of Wilmington and New Hanover County really came through. Yeah, we had lots of partners, and so when the rising cost of construction, which again is, is prevalent across anywhere in the, in the country right now, started to hit us, and we have a concrete steel facility, it's hard to get those things, um, we didn't slow down. I mean, we immediately shifted resources from other general funds to keep this thing going because we know, I mean, we, we seemingly have gotten through hurricane season okay. Uh, I'm going to stop you. And <laughs> <something more here. laughs> yeah. um, but we, we were committed that, as I said before, like this facility is needed um, for a host of things plus that. And so we've pledged to the county that we can have this thing stood up and ready to go for a hurricane season. I don't want to go one more without our facility in hand. So um, we have kept construction going, even though costs have continued. I mean, we're, steel and concrete are up 200% of what we've budgeted. So um, we're, we've been struggling, but I think we, we're, we're still going to have this fully open the spring of next year. Um, one thing I didn't get a chance to talk about, just real briefly, you know, we talked about the kitchen and the, and the, and the, uh, the, um, the fresh market there. Um, we have five acres. We're only going to occupy, you know, an acre and a half of that for, for the facility. We also want to make sure that this facility really uh, enhances that community. And so the extra space that we have uh, will be a garden space. And so we're very excited that um, the Cooperative Extension, uh, Loyal Singleton and his crew, along with Feast Down East, have helped us raise some money through grants for this. So we will actually have two types of gardens on property. One will be a teaching garden. So we can back to nutrition. Mm -hmm. Instead of just showing you a rutabaga in the oven, we can take you out in the garden and show you how to pick it too and create this whole kind of soul to supper effect. Mm -hmm. And then also um, more of a, um, a, um, a community garden. So folks can actually come in that area if they want to learn how to garden. I mean, you know, Victory Gardens were cool back in the, in the 30s. Mm -hmm. I think everybody started gardening, getting chickens, and making sourdough bread during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an opportunity, I think, to teach um, holistically uh, food. Um, and I think beyond just the idea of cooking it, the idea of growing it, I think really starts to, to your point about the White House speech, get at the root of nutrition. Uh, the full effect of, of growing my own food if I can and then cooking it in my home. I think if you have someone who is a, resistant to eating fresh food, whether it's, whether that's a six-year-old kid or your dad who wants to eat fried food, uh, there's something about picking a cherry tomato off mm -hmm. of a vine that's warm from the sun and eating it that will change your mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We know that there are people who are curious about where we are with the project and how much further we have to go. I think the best place that I could point someone to is our website. We've created a special uh, page where they could go and see who else is supporting us and where we are. And so that is foodbankcenc.org backslash ILM update. Um, so that's, that's probably the best place to get the whole story on where we are and how much further we have to go. And we will have that link on the page at whqr.org. Well, Beth Kekaloon, Matt Rogers, uh, thank you so much, both of you, for your time today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, we ben. appreciate it. And when the rutabagas are ready, I will come down and pluck one awesome. and roast it and eat it. And I'll come over and, and try it. <laughs> it's good. They're good. All right. Thank you both so much. Thanks. Thanks. 
All right. Well, that's it for this podcast-only edition of The Newsroom. If you've got thoughts or comments about this show, hit us up at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.